0: Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio episode 1003. This week, we're bringing you a couple of face-to-face conversations from the winter meetings in San Diego, as well as a pair of our contributors diving into outfield defense. First up, David Lorela welcomes Fernando Perez, former Major League outfielder and analyst and current coach for the San Francisco Giants. David and Fernando discuss what Fernando is doing in San Diego for the winter meetings, and what he talks to Farhan Zaidi about up in the suite, as well as what his coaching role with the Giants involves. David and Fernando also talk about soccer in the World Cup, if he would be a good scout, and his relationship with former manager Joe Madden. Finally, we get a bit of insight into what the winter meetings environment is really
1: like. There's so many different things going on. You have people looking for jobs. You have people that don't really want to be there. Then there's like the sort of like frat boy aspect of it, of all these people kind of catching up. So it's just like a definitely a interesting place. So, yeah, I came just to have some conversations with some, some folks that I work with. And then, you know, there's been a side of getting to see a couple people that I don't see. You know, time is uh, it's crazy. We just don't, there's just no time for, for anything. So uh, being able to actually like run into somebody for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes is like a lovely thing.
0: After that, Jay Jaffe sits down with old friend Eno Saris of The Athletic who is excited to be casting his first Hall of Fame ballot this year. The pair run down the list of noteworthy candidates, from Wagner to Kent to Sheffield to Beltran to Jones to Helton and more, as Eno looks for some help from someone who has done his share of research on the subject. Jay and Eno discuss the elephant in the room that is PEDs, wishing they had the same advanced data back then that they do now, trying to come to logical consistency and more. Eno also shares who he really wishes he could vote for, and who he knows he will for sure.
2: First of all, what went through your mind when you when you got the ballot in the mail for the first time
3: well, i wish barry bonds was on this one
2: okay yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah that was uh this was the uh, this would have been barry bonds would have been on this one if it is the old rules
2: yeah um, that's a good point
3: and that was a, something that i thought about when i first got into the bbwa and i first thought i was going to get a hall of fame vote i thought i'm going to get to vote for barry bonds
2: yeah
3: uh, but shortly after that they changed the rules i may i am excited to to vote for scott Rowland. i think he deserves it in the final segment Davey
0: Andrews welcomes fellow contributor Alex Eisert for his Fangraphs audio debut. Both Davey and Alex have been writing about outfield defense at the site, and they dig into OAA and their theories about player handedness. We also hear how Alex came to write at Fangraphs, some of their favorite regular commenters at the website, the need for more psychology in baseball, and being loud about Yankees fandom. Finally, Davey and Alex talk about the process of intentionally or unintentionally adding humor to their analytical articles the thing that I loved about this
4: article before it even got started is right at the top. This is an article about directional outs above average. And you you started a, a sentence with, I decided to come at this question from a few angles. <laughs> and I, it's, uh, I don't know. That's, that's the sentence of the year for me so far.
5: Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I I actually wrote that. And then I looked back and I was like, wait a second, that's really good. <laughs>
4: I think I do the opposite. Sometimes the jokes come out, but sometimes I write, like the, the last piece I wrote on outfield defense, I finished it, and I was like, this is too dry. And so I just went, read through the whole, yeah, I don't know, 1,500 mm-hmm. words, specifically looking for what is something funny mm-hmm. I can say amidst all of these numbers.
0: But before we get to these wonderful segments, I must issue you my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. If you're still looking for holiday gifts for the baseball fan in your life, can we recommend some FanGraphs swag and merch? You can also give the gift of an ad-free Fangraphs membership. Good for blazing fast browsing speeds, as well as the joy of knowing you are helping to support your favorite baseball website. It has been a busy week at the pages of Fangraphs.com, and we could not do it without the support of all of you. If you like what we're doing and want to help us do it, an ad-free membership is definitely the best way. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show.
6: Greetings from the Winter Meetings in San Diego. This is David Lorela, and I'm talking to my old buddy, Fernando Perez, who I think most listeners are familiar with. Former player, now a coach for the San Francisco Giants, uh, effectively wild guest at least once previously. And uh, Fernando, you are at the Winter Meetings. Why are you at the Winter Meetings?
1: (laughs) It's actually a good question. Why am I at the Winter Meetings? I work for the Giants. Really, I came to have 2.5 conversations with colleagues and it just, they had to happen kind of quickly. It just sort of was the best place for it to happen. I also just had a little bit of just general curiosity about it. hadn't been to the winter meetings in like 10 years. The first time I went, uh, I was looking for a job playing center field, hopefully, and uh was not really successful in in finding one, but I just remember thinking that it was such a really fascinating, bizarre place. Like it's just so, there's so many different things going on. You have people looking for jobs, you have people that don't really want to be there. Then there's like the sort of like frat boy aspect of it, of all these people kind of catching up. So it's just like a definitely a interesting place. So yeah, I came just to have some conversations with some, some folks that I work with. And then, you know, there's been a side of getting to see a couple people that I don't see, you know, time is, uh, it's crazy. We just don't, there's just no time for, for anything. So, uh, being able to actually like run into somebody for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes is like a lovely thing
6: so you haven't been up in the suite with farhan trying to figure out how to sign Aaron judge
1: <laughs> <laughs> i've been up in the i've been up in the suite i was up in the suite yesterday uh but farhan and i were talking more about uh dietary choices and how, <laughs> and how it's so easy to make terrible decisions at times like these that would
6: be a conversation i think with uh, your manager with gabe
1: oh yeah yeah that that would be that would be a conversation. I think that'd be a conversation that he just like wouldn't really like to have. I think it'd be it'd be a conversation that people would want to have with him and he would just be like tired of having. but uh um, I guess
6: the point is I think he eats better than most of us. He eats he, smarter than most of us.
1: It would appear that way for sure and yeah, and i I believe that it's true. So yeah, there's been a bit of time up there up in the suite where all the magic happens. But yeah, the, the brief conversation that I had with Farhan was about to eat frosted mini-wheats or to not eat frosted mini-wheats. He did not eat frosted mini-wheats, and um, myself and many others encouraged him to get real sustenance so that he could make the great decisions that Be- I know he's capable
6: better of. Better than frosted
1: mini-wheats. Probably better than frosted mini-wheats.
6: Yeah, no, serious question, though. Have you been upstairs when, like, decisions were being made? Not maybe decisions, but, like, crunching ideas
1: That is not really my job. I've had a couple people kind of ask me about, you know, that sort of thing. More people that I don't know that well, kind of just being like, hey, can you like tell us some, you know, information that the people want to know? I don't have that kind of stuff. Not really my job. I'm not a a decision maker like that. I get quite a bit of it um, sort of like more unintentionally, you know, just like, you know, catching up with our major decision makers and, and sort of offhand getting some of that info. But it's just not really part of my job. I'm not a, I'm not a decision maker like that. And so but in the course of doing my job, I'm often faced with quite a bit of the the juicy, sexy information that uh, the fan graphers crave.
6: And what is your job responsibility <laughs> with the Giants?
1: Essentially, my job is to help our coaches communicate with our players. And having spent many years uh, working in media, making documentaries and content and like and, and that sort of thing, that's more or less the medium that I work in the most. Job changes with the seasons. I do some other things in the in the off season that are content related that I. I'm like a little less, comf- you know, comfortable talking about, but it's just kind of the the sorts of things that we do for to you know prepare for free agents and prepare um, you know our coaches and stuff for the season. But in general, I'm I'm just um I'm I'm a producer, really. There's a lot of a lot of there's a lot of excellent information that is sort of on the cutting room floor, so to speak. In an organization, and I make sure that a lot of that information sees the light of day for our players. So I'll just I'll just stop there before I say too much.
6: I would say <laughs> when you were at the winter meetings, yay, many years ago, mm-hmm. uh, hoping to, for a job as a player. Um, I know you've told me that teams wanted, or at least were interested in you being a scout. Would you have been a, a good scout?
1: I think so, but maybe not. I have the sense that as a scout, I'd i would give you a lot of info, and then I think that it would be on someone else to sift through it and see if they got what they actually wanted. I was actually quite interested in going to scout school this year, but I was just working too much on some other things and was unable to do it. Learning their vernacular and all of that is one thing, but we're all kind of scouting in in our you know in our ways whether we are looking at a player that we have or a player that someone else has and we're trying to guess whether this player is on an upward trend or a downward trend like we're all doing some some element of it i would say that yeah i i'm i'm definitely interested i don't i don't know if i would be good i would be very very thorough but uh, again a lot of i'm just so trained to take a lot of information in and that is probably useless to the scout but who knows maybe maybe a lot of that information would be like eventually useful there's a lot of types of scouting i remember the the scout who signed me talked about eavesdropping on a conversation that i was having on the bench with some of the players on my team and that he had sort of gleaned that I was, he was, he he was very encouraged by the conversation that I was having on the bench with, you know, my, my teammates. So I don't know, there's a lot of scouting and whether or not it makes it into those reports when you talk with, you know, baseball ops folks about players and things like that, we're talking about all sorts of things. You know, it's not as simple as like the mechanics of the swing. So lots of things, lots of these sort of, like novelistic details are also catching everybody's eyes and are widely talked about. Now, what is actually of interest to people in the very technical reports, that's another story. But as we're talking, especially in, in environments like this, in a lobby, perhaps with a drink in your hand, all of the you know details are interesting and, and sort of being floated around.
6: And we actually have water in front of us. But uh, for people who wonder (laughs) what happens at the winter meetings, uh, come evening, there are a lot of drinks in hands.
1: There Uh, are often. And um, yeah, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of it's just I think that there are a lot of people that are just very excited to just get a chance to see lots of people that perhaps they'd like, like to have more actual time with, but just don't because of the constraints of their job. But it's such an interesting place. Like there are, there are people that are here hoping to get their their big break. I definitely identify with that quite a bit. You see that. It's almost you can just tell by the way sometimes folks are dressed. So there's quite a bit of that. And then there's, um, you know, then there's you could see the look of a baseball executive trying to avoid media. <laughs> like there's all of these things if you're with a decently trained eye, you can kind of see. So it's it's definitely, it's a it's an interesting scene if you're a person that likes looking at scenes, for sure.
6: And you just missed a manager that you were hoping to catch up to. He did his, his uh, media session that I was at, and uh, he managed to walk, I guess, in the wrong direction for you to catch him.
1: Yeah, I missed him. Matt Quacharo, he was my rookie ball coach. Most memorable... Thing I have. I mean, he was. um, I spent a lot of time with him, and as he was my hitting coach, it was the first year that I had ever. I was just occasionally once a week taking swings left handed to, you know, eventually, I think it was like the next year, maybe two years later, I actually started. And um, so I spent a lot of time with him and it was just very interesting. Was, you know, it's rookie ball. I had no idea what was going on, like what was a, what I was in for, whether or not I was going to really do this or not. And just a really calming presence. Uh, I'm sure that he's going to be a fantastic manager. I know that he's been on the bubble for quite a while. My best memory of him is when he took me into the cage, didn't say anything took me into a batting cage and told me to get in the box, get in the box left-handed. And he just didn't tell me what was going on. He's just like, don't swing at these pitches, just take them. And he was throwing them with tennis balls. He threw a couple down the middle and then he just like threw one right at me, like in the middle of my back and hit me. Just And he just had to make sure that I was gonna turn the right way to not like turn and get hit in the neck by a baseball. Really, really funny because he had to do this whole thing with a straight face and not tell me what was going on. I'll never forget it. Lovely dude. But, you know, it's in in the real rhythm of baseball, a person that you know very, very well, Rocco, I know very, very well. I saw him and I got to spend literally six minutes with him, and that was like a crazy amount of quality time. Like I uh, hung out in his office with him for like six or seven minutes before – you know, our bus took us to the plane, and that was quality time. And typically, it's more like fever dreams of like seeing somebody on a field, and being like, "Hey, you doing? Everything good? Your family good?" Blah, blah, blah. And that's like, you know, done with. So, um, uh, hopefully, I'll run into him, but who knows? You never know.
6: Hey, he's around. I ran into Rocco and had about two or three minutes of quality time just yesterday. But there, are, everybody's heading somewhere, and everybody's meetings. everybody heading somewhere. is busy. Yeah. uh, One funny thing, I'm thinking about my own illustrious career that didn't get beyond high school, but you're Mm -hmm. talking about uh, him throwing a ball at your back Mm -hmm. when you were trying to, you know, you're hitting Mm -hmm. left-handed. It was a new thing. I tried switch hitting in high school a little and actually had a nicer swing left-handed than right. Uh, And one reason that I decided I can't do this. And I don't know if this is common or uncommon. I could not get out of the way of an inside pitch, hitting Mm. left-handed. It felt unnatural to move out of the way. Hmm. I suppose I'd have learned out of self-preservation, but it was interesting. Maybe you weren't scared enough. (laughs) (laughs) I don't
1: know know what that's about. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I would imagine if you don't turn the right way the first time, that's a problem. And... I don't even, I can't even begin to guess how you would try to address that problem if somebody turned the wrong way.
6: And I fortunately will not ever have to worry about that because uh, I I don't think I'm never, I'd like to hit again, actually. (laughs) And I don't think there's a single person listening to this podcast who's interested in me talking about, uh, about me hitting. hitting. Let me ask you a question, Fernando. (laughs) You know, we've, you've touched on teammates. Uh, Brad Miller was on the pod. Last week, a huge soccer fan. We talked a ton of soccer, obviously some baseball. You are a huge soccer fan. I'm going to ask you a question I asked Brad, which is when you think back to your former teammates, which of them was the best soccer player or would or could have been the best soccer player?
1: There was that thing I saw on social media. It was this guy, just like kind of like a influencer comedian talking about how good the US would be if all of these amazing football players were, you know, playing soccer, you know, their whole life. John Morant being a striker, LeBron James being a goalkeeper, mm-hmm. Steph Curry being an attacking midfielder, you know, that sort of thing. I'm sure that's true. It's just it's just such a long way off of, you know, of that happening. I can't I would say maybe of guys that I played with it's tough because you have to kind of guess their, you have to kind of like take their body like in that direction of like what they would be guys that I played with. I mean, BJ Upton is probably for me one of the most gifted athletes that I ever saw, if not the most. And yeah, I mean, you could be looking at at like a phenomenal striker, like maybe that's like Kylian Mbappé. You know, maybe he turns into like a great center back or something like that. So, yeah, you have to kind of you have to sort of I I believe you just have to like kind of look at the body type and like try to like kind of like throw the, like bucket them that way. I'm trying to think of other other athletes.
6: What about Fernando Perez? I guess he was very fast.
1: Yeah, I was. Um, But I was just like I was a typical American soccer player, a little bit heavy, heavy. The touch was a little bit heavy didn't have individual quality just like didn't play soccer enough you know soccer is uh you you really cannot play another sport you really can with baseball though like you can be a football player and then be sort of taught baseball late or a basketball player look at um Lorenzo Cain started playing baseball in high school like that doesn't you don't start playing soccer in high school and make it anywhere unless you are a goalkeeper which is a different you know a different story like the US goalkeeper soccer is not that way in order to possibly have the quality necessary to be a world class player you have to your relationship with the ball and the way that you move the ball has to develop at a very 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 young age now you know maybe i'm saying this and then that somebody crazy you know somebody like defies this and learns how to play soccer like at 12 or 13, but I just don't think that it would happen. Like you're, you know, some there, there's probably some more elegant way to explain this, but the way that your, your motor skills relate to your feet and, you know, working with a ball, I, I just don't think it's a thing that you can pick up late. So it'll be a really interesting time when soccer is big enough in America that, the first ball rolled to the average child is a soccer ball. But, you know, right now it's like probably a basketball, I guess. Football has its own problems. Ultimately, there's, there's a lot of, you know, whatever it is that you choose, if it's soccer or baseball, like let's say I had chosen soccer. I think in high school, I was like the same at all three sports that I played as a 16 year old or 17 year old. And then there's the what with, specialization comes this sort of like closing the gap between just being like quite good and gifted to being world-class and maybe playing like professionally. And so presumably that happens in, if you take a BJ Upton or you take, you know, like a great athlete, presumably the same thing that happened for that person in baseball would happen for the other sports. Cause it's just focused time working on the sport and that they probably get there. But yeah, so I think I think of BJ quite a bit. I mean, to be honest, without that injury, I think that he ends up being one of the better players of our generation. I probably have like talked to you about this at length, but I think we just don't really know how to talk about injuries very well. And we just don't understand what's going on with guys that you know, have an injury. It's like they, they have an injury, like say a serious shoulder or, or a, you know wrist or a knee, and they're just not quite as good the next year. And we just sort of sort of forget that that sort of arc or that inverse arc of you know not being very good and then maybe like coming back. I expect Cody Bellinger to be incredible this year. Like we we forget he had a shoulder surgery and he signed today and he signed today
6: with the Chicago Cubs. Yes. Actual winter meetings news. An
1: actual winter meetings deal. It's a one year deal. As I expected, I expect him to be incredible. He also has the incentive of, you know, a one year deal so that, you know, perhaps this time next year, it ends up being a very, very large deal. But you know, this is a person that had a shoulder surgery and the way that that feels is that it feels like you have new hardware Your whole life, you go play a sport with these levers that you know very, very well. And then, you know, then you have a surgery and one of these levers feels like an inch shorter and a bit tighter. And, you know, it takes a while to learn how to use that lever again. That's like the best way that I would explain it. So yes, always here to talk about how good BJ really was.
6: And let's jump to, actually, this is not really even a jump because this is still uh, still soccer-related. There are all the manager sessions today. I'm actually missing one to record this right now. Uh, along with the managers, the managers of the WBC teams all met with the media. And the Netherlands, uh, Hensley Mullins is the manager, the coach. Um, there is another gentleman from the Netherlands, and I apologize, I'm not remembering his name off the top of my head, Um, I spoke to him about soccer in the Netherlands. Obviously, Curacao in the Islands is where a lot of their talent is. On the Italian side, uh, Blake Butera, who is a manager in the Rays system, future big league manager in my opinion, is a manager, but another manager there is from Italy. I asked both of them somewhat jokingly, but it actually isn't jokingly, who decides to play baseball as kids in your countries, I said, is it the kids who realize that they don't have, they're not good with their feet? Because in Italy and the Netherlands, you are naturally going to play soccer. But there are a lot of people playing baseball and surprisingly more players playing in Italy than the Netherlands, I learned today.
1: Yeah. Germany has quite a bit of them in Europe. I did some coaching with MLB International programs and got a look at a lot of those players germany sending quite a bit of them what was the what was the ultimately the answer that he gave about like what types of players are actually like deciding to play this crazy baseball game in europe
6: it seems a lot like people whose families had backgrounds people who moved to you know those countries specifically italy you know people from different you know more baseball playing countries the father yeah. was there near there in the armed services maybe for working but they're certainly growing, yeah. In, in, in both countries, yeah. Let's jump because uh, we're running short on time. I want to jump to Joe Madden. You have a relationship with Joe Madden that mm-hmm. goes way back. I don't know if he's here. I know he wants to manage again. Um, he might be too busy doing things with his book. You know, Joe Madden wants to manage again. What What is Joe Madden like from um, from your perspective, from a player's perspective?
1: I mean, he's all that I know as, you know, as a, as a manager, um, well, as you know, playing as a manager and my experience couldn't really have been better, especially at that time when the landscape of managers and things were far different, was far different than it is now. You know, I think one thing is they say, like the kids like to say that you're, um, you know, they, the term of giving someone their flowers like Joe is so many of the things that are sort of taken for granted and are just sort of regular attributes of organizations and managers and, and environments that staffs attempt to create all go directly to Joe Madden. I mean, of, of my generation, he's like the, he's like the most influential innovator. It's just that, you know, it happened kind of recently and we've sort of like moved on from that moment. But so many of the, of the, things that staffs are attempting to say that they're all about when trying to attract players. They it, It's a through line directly to Joe. The idea, I mean, for a very, very long time in this game, I sort of straddle this time where the whole, the, the only way that we knew to nurture young players was to just like, be kind of like mean to them at first and make them uncomfortable. And then have them later be grateful to have passed from that phase. It was just like sort of like bad, bad parenting. Now I'm sure the stories that I hear from older baseball people are that, you know, that just was much worse before. So Joe, a major thing that he did was just how about everybody is extremely comfortable and how about I, I kind of treat the young rookie as I would, our veteran star, uh, something that I that I very much felt, and then also just in mentality, he was really really brilliant with um, with mentality, and that was very very helpful for me. And a lot of these things that were that are just so, so normal now, like the power of positive thinking and. You know, energy and things like that, that were just very, very subtle parts of him that are just sort of like the norm where, you know, somebody gets up at a baseball conference, you know, and says some things that Joe Madden was saying 15 years ago. And they're just like, wow, what a great coach. So I just think of him as a major, major innovator of all of these things. And he deserves lots and lots of flowers for, I think, how influential he was. Cause this is a copycat league. And when something is working, Team other teams work as fast as they can to try to copy it and replicate it, and I think that he has been insanely influential.
6: And there are no flowers here in this hotel room <laughs> that we disappeared to. Give the man. You know, his know, from flowers. the meetings, we do have uh, a couple of bananas here. Though. <laughs> Give the For man his bananas. Right. We are going to uh, cut this here because I do want to run down to get the last uh, manager. You know, availability. So thanks, Fernando, for doing this on, like, literally 10 minutes notice. Happy and, to be here. And maybe later we will have a drink in our hands in the uh, the lobby bar. And thanks, everybody, for tuning into to Fangraphs Audio.
2: Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. A little over two weeks ago, the Baseball Writers Association of America sent out the 2023 Hall of Fame ballot with 28 candidates on it for consideration by a voting body of about 400 people. Given that it was just two years ago that I received my first ballot, after 10 years in the BBWAA and 10 additional years of covering the Hall of Fame deliberations, I can remember just how excited I was to hold that ballot for the first time. When I found out that Eno Saris, a name that needs little introduction here at Fangraphs, whether you're a reader or a listener, got his first ballot, I thought it would be a fine idea to bring him on Fangraphs Audio and let him talk about the challenges that he faces in figuring out who he wants to vote for. So with me today is Eno Saris, famous Fangraphs alum and now national writer for The Athletic. Welcome to the show, Eno.
3: Well, thanks for welcoming me home. And,
2: uh, nice for, the, for those of you listening, we are actually recording this live in person at the winter meetings in San Diego. And so this is, this is a new thing for us, but, uh, for me at least. And, uh, unfortunately, because, because of certain considerations, we don't get to do this over beer, uh, as I think we both would have, would have planned ideally, but, uh, the company is wonderful just the same. So let's talk about it. You know, what, uh, first of all, what went through your mind when you, when you got the ballot in the mail for the first time?
3: Well, I wish Barry Bonds was on this one.
2: Okay. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah that was, uh, this was the, uh, this would have been, Barry Bonds would have been on this one if it was the old rules.
2: Uh, yeah, that's a good point.
3: And that was a, something that I thought about when I first got into the BBWA and I first thought I was going to get a Hall of Fame vote, I thought I'm going to get to vote for Barry Bonds. Yeah. Uh, but shortly after that, they changed the rules. I may. I am excited to, to vote for Scott Rowland. I think he deserves it. I think it is the type of package that some fans won't appreciate because there were some years where he had the 500 plate appearances. It wasn't a full, full full-time player. He didn't always hit those heights where he necessarily had, you know, the rings and the accolades and the MVPs, but he was such a study performer that, uh, and he was such a good bat with the good glove uh, that I think he should be rewarded for that. So I'm excited to vote for him. And uh, I think Billy Wagner, as you know, I'm 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 okay with considering relievers as their own entity. So those are my two that I am definitely going to vote for.
2: Okay, let's back up a bit. Now, when you, we talk about Barry Bonds, we'll get to the whole PED issue here uh, in a few minutes. Well, we can't just, avoid that. Yeah, we can't. You, obviously, it's it's <laughs> it's the elephant in the room here. But you know, was 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 the responsibility and the and the privilege of, of voting for the Hall of Fame something that you actually? thought about much when you first got into the organization 10 years ago? Or was it something that like, oh, you only realized when you you got really close?
3: No, it is. uh, It's funny. I just, award voting, I would say award voting and Hall of Fame voting wrapped up together was something I was excited about. Uh, have you, um, you gotten
2: to vote on... on... Yes, I've okay. gotten
3: to vote on Cy Young's. I voted on the uh, American League Cy Young this year. I was one of the few to put Otani second. Okay. Uh, but um, yeah, I was I was excited about uh, voting for awards and, and I think Hall of Fame was an extension of that. I don't have the same, I think, sense of history and understanding of the history of baseball that you do. I didn't have exactly that same passion. I'm kind of a trends writer, you know. Right. I'm was, kind of about what's next and what's happening right now. Uh, I was
2: going to say exactly that, that, yeah. that. Like, you know, I'm kind of the history buff here, and I read you to to find out like what the next technology yeah. is, and what teams are doing inside, <laughs> and you're looking, you're looking. 10, 20 years in the future. Now I'm looking 10, 20 years in the past. Yeah. And so this is this is quite a contrast here. Yeah. And I thought it was one reason why I thought this would be a good conversation. The
3: one, the one thing that's nice for me is that at least these players uh, played when I was in the States and was watching baseball. Because right. <laughs> I came to the States in 86 and uh, emulated uh, some of these players as a fan growing up. So Gary Sheffield the batwag the fred mcgriff mm-hmm. helicopter finish right. uh, those were things that i that i emulated and enjoyed as a fan but yeah it's not my best foot forward partially because i don't have the greatest memory my my computer is my brain and so i can't i can't tell you uh often where a person ranks i'm not a jason stark where you know right. he can just tell you you know he can answer trivia like I, I got nothing on nothing on trivia I'm a terrible trivia <laughs> if I can look it up on my on fan graphs I can figure it out
2: look, I mean, you know, it's like what, the, what you know what they teach you in college it's not just to fill your head with information it's to teach you the processes of how to find the information when you don't know it I mean right we all know you know where to find baseball reference when we need it where to find fan graphs when we need it mm. where to find baseball savant when we need it and, and ideally how to push those things to their limit to get the answers that we want when we don't have them.
3: Yeah, and what's interesting, I think, about the Hall of Fame vote writ large is that some of the tools that I can use with more precision in the moment in this season or in the next season are not available historically. Right. And um, there's a story for me in the Yadi Molina Hall of Fame case, which is not on this ballot, but just generally there were some that were very adamant that he was not a Hall of Famer. And I heard, uh, you know, very loud contingent of Cardinals fans, but also just people around the game who said, "No, this is a Hall of Famer." And then Fangraphs added framing war uh, to war, and then you're like, "Yep, looks like a Hall of Famer now." <laughs> you know, right. Uh, right?
2: Yeah, that's I, I understand you because I mean, I've I've kind of been in that position too, and especially when we were able to add to add that war, uh, you know, the 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 pitch framing stuff to the data, it really does make a much stronger case for him than traditional war. And we'd be silly to ignore that, even if it, mm. even if it does end up being, you know, just a relatively short slice of baseball history for which we have this, if, if, you know, automatic ball and strike system, you know, goes into effect sometime in the next few years and pitch framing becomes you know, more or less irrelevant, we'd be silly to ignore where Molina fits in, where Buster Posey fits in, mm-hmm. um, I think those are the two. Those are the two major ones, but Joe Mauer as well. We kind of have to th- look at these guys. I mean, I'm on a you know kind of on a crusade that that like we got to take a closer look at Brian McCann and Russell Martin too, because those guys were you know right up there on the leaderboards with Yadier Molina and and Buster Posey, and so yeah, that's a whole that's a whole thing. And I wish we had I wish we had Statcast stuff. I wish we had you know. DRS for guys before 2002 I wish we had OAA for guys before 2016 right it's not just it's the like, catcher it's issue. it's not just yes yeah, not this is yeah. not just, you you hit on something that's big it's not just the catcher issue but we mm-hmm. do have to make different assumptions based on the era that we've that, that really that we've been watching and covering the game the way that the way that like the data has exploded and it has enhanced our understanding that we just can't always fully apply that backwards uh-huh.
3: Wed to the model are you? How uh, how absolutist are you in sort of in when it comes to Jaws or when it comes to the model, the mo- the numbers itself? Yeah, it's
2: you know I think Jaws is best seen as as a, as a first cut mechanism. It's like yeah. it'll tell you it'll it'll tell you a, a thirty person ballot. Hey, here are the twelve guys you want to look at closely, or here are the fifteen guys you want to look at closely. And really, if you're thinking about this guy, this is not somebody who I think you should be should be focusing on. And once you once you get to that point and you start to, you know, you can start to pull apart each one like, well, we've got contrasting defensive metrics on on this guy that say he was terrible versus that say he was league average or league average versus great. You know, I've the last couple of years I've taken a a, a closer look at starting and relief pitching, you know, starting pitching in light of not comparing these guys' Or, or you know, or, or trying to account to dial down the influence of the 19th century and dead ball era guys who were throwing 350, 400 innings a year, and make sure that like, you know, these 12 war seasons that were routine in in 1875, right. you know, aren't, up your aren't like are <laughs> yeah aren't are overly penalizing somebody from you know from 2000 or whatever. L- likewise with um with uh, relievers, I'm I'm looking at WPA. And, and leverage index and trying to get a better sense and like you know I, I've come to the conclusion now that while Billy Wagner is only like whatever 20th or, or whatever in, in Jaws straight out of the box he's 6th and the number one reliever outside the hall in what I'm calling our Jaws which take which which really heavily weights WPA and leverage index you go, it's so you got, like, reliever wins. Or it's or like okay job, so yeah, yeah <clears you> know, short <throat> career but really high impact which I think kind of helps to square with the dominance that we see in his, in his rate stats. So I, you know, the further we get into, you know, away from when I first came up with jaws in 2004. And when I, even when I moved it over to baseball reference in 2012, the more we have, to, I, I sort of have to customize it a little bit. Catcher framing is another thing. I think now the fan graphs war needs to be accounted for in there with the framing stuff. Cause baseball reference has been kind of resistant. I mean, like there's a version of DRS that has pitch framing in it. It doesn't always jibe with what's at baseball prospectus mm-hmm. or fan graphs, but you'd like to see it accounted for in there, even if it's not everybody. And you want to see it at the very least. Can we take a subset of these guys that we're thinking about for the Hall of Fame over the next 10, 20 years and, and look at that framing data. You gotta be, you know, we want, you want to try to have a basis for comparison. So yeah, I think, you know, I don't think anybody should be a slave to a single metric. Yeah, Jaws is imperfect, and and there's a whole host of things that we're not even capturing here, like historical importance, postseason contributions, awards. Just like
3: historical defensive uh, stats is something I think about. I mean, I'm looking at at Jeff Kent, you know? Yeah. And, you know, on this ballot uh, by Jaws, he's ninth or 10th. Yeah. You know, I'm not considering voting, really, for Mark Burley. Uh Um, I don't think I'm voting for Andy Pettit, so why would I consider Jeff Kent who's behind them in Jaws? You know, it seems like if there's a cutoff there, then yeah, he's behind I, it. There's, I, I, you know, look, I, Fangraph's I, defense doesn't seem to have him as bad as maybe best for reference defense does. Right. I yeah. That's he has more it, war over there. It's
2: it's certainly something to think about. I mean, I think, you know, I'm surprised given Jeff Kent's standing <laughs> in sort of traditional categories, most home runs by a second baseman, all those big RBI seasons, which don't, you know, I don't think about RBIs very hard. Um, and I don't, Think they should be used as an analytic tool, but you know the perception of this guy is a middle of the lineup yeah. guy. But the thing, one thing I would say is that Kent Kent's offense is not as impressive, I think, as the home run total would lead you to believe, because his on base percentage is not huge for a middle of the lineup guy. I mean, you know, middle of the order guy, and yeah, the defense does knock him down, and, and the whole the overall ranking surprised me when I first when I first looked at it when he first came on the ballot, you know, ten years ago. And, you know, I, I go through the exercise every year. I want to think about where, you know, where he stands. I'm still not convinced enough. I also think that, like, like Fred McGriff, who just got elected to the Hall of Fame by the Contemporary Baseball Committee, Jeff Kent probably fits into that, you know, that subset of players whose candidacies are, are more likely to be appealing to a panel that's half Hall of Famers that looks at those 100 RBI seasons and those 30 homer seasons and says yeah this is a this is a guy we thought very highly of as as peers and opponents and yeah. that's why he's going to get in and you know you can be frustrated about that at times i i am when it comes to certain elections i wasn't a particular You know what came to 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 McGriff. I understand how it gets to this point. Likewise with Kent. I think that's that's possible. So I would say.
3: I mean, it's like he's a bat first guy, (coughs) and he's twenty three percent better than league average. Yeah, which is doesn't strike me as Hall of Fame. It's
2: not. It's not. It's if he had plus defense, I think he would be. But he's got minus defense. Right. So it's 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 a like it's a problem. But it's also fair. Like would I
3: elect a first baseman that had a twenty three? Yeah. You know, WRC plus. No.
2: Right, but it's also fair to question, like, if we've got other defensive metrics that we're not using in this particular, in this particular version of war, do they tell us something different? Yeah, and like, and, I'd
3: hate to be wrong. Yeah, yeah, and like, you know, I think, but sh- I do think it does go along with subjective reports that he was not a good defensive. Yes, second yes. Okay. And I did watch him a fair amount right. because my dad was in San Francisco, and like, you know, I yeah. saw him.
2: Yeah. So that's yeah. No, it's, I'd hate it's, to be
3: biased against him because you know he yeah. was fighting Barry Bonds and right. always seemed like a right a trucker with a. Yeah. I, I, Something I, up his. I, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: I would. I would say this: you're only going to get one chance to vote for Jeff Kent. Oh, no, so, really? Well, because this is his final year on the. Ballot, oh, that's
3: right. right. Yeah. So
2: you will want to take a. You know, I, I would, even as somebody who has not voted for him before, I would say take a long look at him before you before you decide, because there's a very good chance he's going to be in there someday anyway, <laughs> <laughs> whether you like it or not. But you know, but, but I think it's. I look. I think it's. I think it's good to question. You know the the assumptions we arrive at. Well,
3: maybe, you know because you know the the fact that defensive stats, you know, archival defensive stats, we're doing the best we can, right? You know, does make me think a little bit about the Scott Rowland. You know that that is a big part of his, his well, positive argument. But
2: Scott argument. Rowland, most but he also
3: of, had the same,
2: but
3: defensive but, like people thought he was a great defensive third base.
2: Yeah, I mean he and he also like Scott Rowland. Most of his career is, at the very least, in the DRS UZR era, right. whereas Kent's is in the Total Zone era. Right, um, a lot of it. So that's that to me is a is a big difference in their in their standing. But like Gary Sheffield's defense, I mean, like it's just so historically bad that I have to like think that like was he really that big of an outlier? It's it's almost like genereous bad in terms of like you're throwing such a big negative number up there, and it's like okay, well maybe it's a big negative number, but instead of being like hundred runs, it's eighty runs.
3: I mean, he has a better career WRC plus than, than Miguel Cabrera.
2: Oh, Gary Sheffield could yeah. hit. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, when I saw that, I was there's, like, there's, "There's no question." Uh, about I think him. I might vote for him. Yeah, I, I've, I've voted for Gary Sheffield. I've, I, I think it's that's one where I kind of you know realized the limitations of the defensive war in the negative, and especially for the total zone era, I was like, okay. also like
3: he was he played a lot in the in the National League, where like maybe would he have been. Would hit numbers would, that look better if you'd been in DH. Right. I
2: mean, <laughs> compare Gary Sheffield to, to David Ortiz. Yeah. I mean, like
3: Gary All Sheffield gave you
2: gave you more value because he could at least, you know, fake it for a while in the field. And like and he was also grossly mishandled by the Brewers early in his career.
3: Mm-hmm. That's but, where they were playing yeah. him at like third when he shouldn't have been playing at third.
2: Yeah, and, and and sending him down to the minor leagues when they said he was when they you know, when, when they said he was faking an injury. Uh. Um Wow, I got a guy who wrote some stuff about it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll want to read it this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay. So Sheffield, this is a good a good time to segue into the PED issue. What do you where do, where do you fall on that? And I I I preface that by saying I don't think there's a single right answer.
3: Thank you. There's, there's a
2: whole there's <laughs> a whole you know voting body that there. I mean there there are nuances. I think with a with with so many of these guys. And there are a lot of different ways that people, uh, voters look at this, and I think, eh, what I'm, what I'm reading somebody and seeing them describe their about what I'm looking for as much as anything else is logical consistency as opposed to necessarily lockstep agreement. So, yeah,
3: but it's, but it's the but type and, of and
2: even that, and even that's tough. It's and the even, type of thing that can turn you in tough. circles.
3: I mean, it it really, really does. I mean, I I come to it being like this is Cooperstown's museum, and we should we should put everything in. Um, that's where I lean, but at the same time, uh, the hall of fame is an honor. So on choosing to honor someone is a little different than, uh, putting them in a museum. So I am, I am comfortable saying no to some. And the other thing that weighs heavily on me is MLB's complicity in this whole thing. I mean, the guy who presided over the steroid era is in the hall of fame. Right. And it seems to be very hypocritical to say, Oh, the guy who was championing Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and and Barry Bonds and you know putting them on TV and telling everybody how great it was for baseball—he's in the Hall of Fame, but none of those three are. You know, seems a little bit hypocritical. So, what I've tried to do, and the, one of the hardest things is, is to treat uh, sometimes is to treat MLB with good faith itself because they don't always seem to be working in good faith. But what I've tried to do is underline moments when baseball communicated with its players and with the public that they were serious about an issue mm-hmm. um, and that it was meaningful to them. Okay. So that's why 2003 is a big deal for me mm-hmm. because they started a testing program and they said, you know, you can say it was illegal before that, but they were really looking the other way.
2: Yeah, it was a wild west. Yeah,
3: so 2003 is a marker for me. Post-2003, you get in trouble, you were putting your legacy on the line, maybe you don't deserve an honor. Yeah. And just to fast forward ahead to a different part of the ballot, but, you know, Carlos Beltran 2017 is a similar moment for me because in 2017 there was a memo. The Yankees got in trouble for sign stealing. They did many of the same things that the Astros did. They used technology to, to broadcast signs they stole to the, to the, to the field using, a, uh, using a, an iWatch. And when the letter recently came out that they were trying to suppress, Manfred made a statement saying the reason the Yankees and Astros are different is because after the Yankees situation, I sent a memo. Right. And that memo to me is a little bit of that declaration like 2003, which is now this is illegal. These are the consequences. These are what's, what's, going, what's on the line for you from here on out.
2: Right. Okay, so let's... Let's put a pin in, in in the Beltran discussion here. and Get back to the PD All right, guys so first. Back back to PD. Back to P&D. Yeah, 2003. So, so so okay. So so are you saying then you're not going to vote for Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, the guys who have positive tests in their rap so. Okay. I think I think you and I are pretty much on the same page. That's where that's that was kind of where I drew the line.
3: I I totally you hear know. people yeah, who are on I, Twitter telling me I have to vote for them. I, I understand they yeah. are Hall of Fame type players. I totally but. understand.
2: I, I totally understand somebody who says, you know what, MLB screwed this up. You know, from the get go, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to bail them out here. You know, I, I was talking to, you know, to somebody who's just like, yeah, it's. I, I'm not going to be. The, I'm not going to do your your dirty work for you when you couldn't police the game. but so, but, I, but I think which I, again, there's maybe. a logical consistency there. There's a point of view I understand. I don't necessarily think that's the best way to do it, but I think that also like it's a defensible position.
3: For for me, the the fact that they had these uh, infractions after two thousand three also calls into question how long they were doing it, right. and how much of their legacy is is as a result of that. Right.
2: Well, both of those guys were also reported survey test failures too.
3: Right. So, and 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 you don't really have that Bond's narrative of like he used to be one size and then he was another. Mm-hmm. Avedro was always big. Yeah. You know some some sense like big as a teenager so it's like yeah. when when did this thing start i don't yeah. know i don't know and that's the the worst part for me about this whole thing is i don't want to be a, a private eye i mean yes part of being a reporter is chasing stories but like this is something that I didn't.
2: It's something you shouldn't have to chase to like it, to feel like good about your vote. It, it's or,
3: like being in their bathroom with them. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't. This is not part of what I signed up for. But you know, so I'm going to use what MLB's M- MLB's actions and the players' actions and make, create a timeline. And so that's for me, I think Manny and a- uh, Manny and uh, A Rod are off.
2: Okay. All right. So let's get back to Beltran. Now, the one thing I would point out about that, and I'm struggling through. My process here with Beltran as well. I would point out that drawing the line is a little tougher at that memo because that memo happened on I think it's like September fifteenth, yeah, two thousand seventeen. So in the middle got, of the season, so you've got both what came before, and then you've got reports that they were still using you know in Manfred support they were still using it through the two thousand seventeen postseason oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and into two thousand eighteen.
3: But it's also just a memo to front offices where yeah. Carlos is like, well, I never saw that.
2: Well, and 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 the Astros. It was on AJ Hinch and Jeff Lunau to police their players, and they clearly fell down on the job. That's you know, another thing. There's, yeah.
3: That's that's actually a sign from baseball. The way they policed it yeah. was was organizational, yeah, as opposed to player. Yeah. And
2: and of course, obviously, they didn't they didn't penalize Beltran. It's worth pointing out also that the two other ma- managers who were named in this didn't even have to break stride to get back into jobs. Yeah, yeah, they're right Hinch, down. you know, Hinch and. And Alex Cora were hired almost immediately after their suspensions ended. Beltran hasn't even gotten an interview for another for another managerial post. Yeah. And it just seems to me, you know, that while I certainly don't condone it, there are two things that stand out to me. There's one. It's a very easy narrative that has left him, you know, as the godfather to use one of the Astros front, guy. front, you know, and a, and a convenient fall guy. When everybody else, including Jim Crane, you know, got off at, with that worst a slap. Beltron
3: wasn't running Codebreaker.
2: Right, exactly. He wasn't running Codebreaker. He was using the same baseball IQ stuff that had made him, the, you know. The
3: same stuff we laud David Ortiz for. Right. When he's like, you know, he can tell you what pitch is coming.
2: Right, or Chase Utley or, or, yeah. or whoever. It's like, it's just high baseball IQ. And like, the other thing that I would point out is that, you know, sign stealing exists this long continuum that goes back to the 19th century that has often been as much celebrated as it has been scorned. And, you know, it's, it's not unlike spitballing and ball doctoring. We kind of, you know, we applaud these rogues for trying to gain the competitive edge. I mean, we just, you know, we've just been paying tribute to Gaylord Perry, you know, the notorious spitballer who passed away on December 1st, and I'm in the process of writing a tribute that, that I hope will be up by the time this episode hits the streets. But, you know, I think there's there was probably a view in which whatever Carlos Beltran was doing kind of fit within that continuum. It's not it's not a radical break, even, you know, except for the fact that suddenly you've got this late-season memo that Rob Manford has... has sort and, of unprecedented. That's still, that's still sort of also, you know at that point applicable primarily to the executive level. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it, it's something I'm struggling with. I'm leaning I'm on the fence. I'm leaning towards probably including him because Jaws the the numbers stuff tell me that that he is a top 10 center fielder of all time and I even without like going like ridiculously overboard on his on his defensive metrics, I think I think that that, that makes sense to me. So yeah,
3: there's a, a great book by Daniel Levitt and Mark Armour called "Intentional Bonk, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating" that uh, details a lot of this stuff, but all the way back to buzzers in the ground. Yeah,
2: you know. Yeah. Oh, um, that, yeah. Another thing. So the 1951 Giants are said to have used a buzzer system. You read the more recent reporting when when that's been dug up, they're like, hell yeah, we did it. What yeah. you going about it? You know, it's like they're not apologizing. Yeah. Nobody's making, nobody's trying to twist their arm. I mean, they will. Some of them will say, yeah, I feel bad for Ralph Branca. He really wore that one, and he was a you know he was a he was a stand up guy about it. But like, yeah, they're not apologizing. Well, granted, we're not talking about the Hall of Fame case of Bobby Thompson or whatever here or Herman Franks. But Willie Mays was on that team, and
3: you know, there's a, and I don't want to muddy the water because you know I have hopefully come to a, a place where I can understand my votes, not voting for Manny and and Arod. But there is a potential way to muddy the water, which is to understand that you know the the history of drug use in baseball is is pretty extensive and goes back a long way, right. and that we may have a misunderstanding of how much steroids help a player. That is related to ball construction because there was a change in ball construction. Costa Rica, we went to like Costa Rica to Guatemala. Like yeah, there was like I've written change. I've written about
2: this myself. And, and yeah, it's, a, it's
3: pretty it's, obvious that ball flight changed from one year to the next, where it you couldn't be a steroid thing. It was like home runs per fly ball. Right like, in the
2: early '90s, yes, the the rate of like fly balls per home run or home runs per per batted ball just. It's spike. on the rise. It's like a 47% rise for the whole game.
3: There's no way that's like, yeah. it, it's not, you know, half the game didn't just start taking steroids. Right, exactly.
2: Well, I mean, if you hear, if you listen to some players, they will tell you. Like, Ken yeah. would tell you that, yeah. that's, that, that they did. It
3: certainly is possible, but that might cloud our understanding. Yeah,
2: because, I, think, I think, yes, I think it's fair to question, you know, how much how much we. But then we well have some
3: that. use cases where we're like, okay, we think Barry Bonds without steroids hit you know, 35 homers. And we think right. Barry Bonds with steroids at 70. So right seems like maybe it helped him. <laughs> quite possible.
2: All right. Let's, um, so who else, if, if you're a yes on Belcher, where are you on An- Andrew Jones?
3: I, I was leaning no, but I think I'm, I'm leaning back. Yes. I'm on the fence. Um, the reason I was leaning no was it's one of the lesser bats of, Uh, Hall of Famer. It's like a worse bat than Harold Baines, which is not really a good bar to set. Right, it's not
2: really. I mean, you're talking about Harold Baines was mostly a DH. Andrew Jones was a Gold Glove winning center fielder. Not all those gloves are necessarily, you know, as justified, especially in the pre metrics era, as they as they might have as they might be today. But his case does rest heavily. On, on, defensive on stats, the defensive stats, and which may not be our, which may not best. be as 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 good as you know. Would he would he be as much of an outlier today? I don't know. And i i I've, I've included Jones. I think my logic my logic of it is if you look at the the Braves big three who were in the Hall, Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz. Only Smoltz was a guy who missed a ton of bats. He was the big strikeout pitcher. Those balls in play had to go somewhere, mm. and there's nobody who played with those guys and had a greater impact on defense than Andrew Jones. Than Andrew Jones. Well,
3: I'm not putting Jeff Blauser in no matter what you say. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, the thing that actually made me kind of uh, consider him in back in the other direction was looking at Omar Vizquel uh, because in Omar Vizquel, I saw a similar sort of case where here's a guy who's, you know, going to go in on defense if he goes in, but the uh, WRC Plus is just so much worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're talking about a guy who, for his career, was 13% worse than average. Right. Where right. I was like, you know what? Jones did elite defense. And despite a poor ending of his career, you know, managed to still have a, you know, twelve eleven 11% better than league average bat. You right. Know? And there's a little bit of fandom bias that may have paused me to go towards no, which is me yelling at the screen to stop swinging at the slider low and away. You know? <laughs> uh, and my sort of, you know, inner child frustrations with uh, his strikeout rate sometimes. Right, right. Um, and then sometimes, and, and so just me looking at his numbers and being like, you know what? You know, he did he did strike out, but he hit the ball really hard when he hit the ball. And uh, hitting the ball really hard and playing elite defense, you know, seems like a Hall of Fame combination. I don't want To elect people that I find one note. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm not going to vote for Vizquel. Mm -hmm. And then I guess there is a little bit of some morals clause uh, considerations uh, for Andrew Jones that are there for Vizquel as well. Yeah, Um, the domestic
2: violence stuff.
3: And those are difficult for me to look past. But again, you know, I think you've even seen with Marcelo Zuna uh, recently where the details of the case have changed over time. You know, and, and Marcel in his case where, you know, there's there was cops lying. You know, it's like really hard for us to always you know, know that is, that is exactly some, what was happening. Yeah, that is, that
2: is that is something, you know, I, I have taken the position where, look, I've in my coverage of these candidates, I will I will write about the domestic violence cases. And there's stuff that I did not know. Like I did not know Sammy Zosa had the had a had a DV case in the 90s. Well, I'd
3: I, forgotten about Jones. Yeah, no Barry Bonds had name.
2: two incidents that were that that were brought up in court. I remember that. And I mean, there's, you know, there's unfortunately you know, Manny Ramirez. It makes me nervous the extent to which all of these guys are players of color. Yeah. And what we know differentially about the way these crimes are pursued and about policing and mm. police lying and yeah, I so. I'm somebody who does not put a lot of stock in the character integrity sportsmanship clause of the voting. Again, I think that's, you know, I think that gets distorted because it's only been used to keep players out and, and not, you know, elevate them. So I try to avoid invoking that. But, I mean, to me, Vizquel just does not have the numbers. Once you look at the, the actual defensive metrics, do not give him the bounce that he needs to overcome that. That, well, I mean, yeah, I,
3: I struggle with it a little bit with Kurt Schilling, to be frankly. Yeah, Kurt frank. Schilling is because I, I, I would, is be would be willing too. to be like yeah, you know, okay, let me let me not be the moral police here, and let me just right. you know try to be you know, it is we are gatekeeping. It's a it's a weird it's, uh, a it, weird it, thing. Yes, it is it, it is it, actually it, gatekeeping. It is it
2: is. I think the, the point I arrived at with Schilling after talking about this with certain people is is you know if Andrew Jones or even Omar Vizquel is elected, I mean it's not as though they're going to use their platform to encourage <laughs> this kind of behavior. And, you know, it's, I mean, it may send the wrong message about whether we're honoring somebody who has been accused of this behavior. Right. And I understand that. And I certainly understand why somebody for whom this, these issues hit home on a more personal level would be, level very, angry would be very angry about it. And I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that, but with Shilling, especially I, you know, I mean,
3: yeah, no one's going to be like I did it, and I I meant to, and you I should too. <laughs> and I don't well, I don't, want, I don't want
2: him up there. You know, I don't want to I don't want to encourage like a whole flood of dangerous right wing lunatics, election deniers to show up at Cooperstown, and make that um, whole political and make, experience, and, and, and yeah, and make that make a mess of that. Okay, I think the other the other candidate I know we talked about before this before this conversation that you sounded interested in was um, was Bobby Abreu hmm so let's talk about Bobby Abreu who's a player that, that I know like when we were talking about setting this podcast up you'd express some interest in where are you on him
3: um I, I had initially thought you know because of of my first look at, at the Jaws page on baseball reference which is hugely helpful as a voter by the way and, yeah uh, I, I thanks I, I didn't
2: ask for that and they and they, and they made it and I was like holy hell this is going to be like the thing that Everybody.
3: Yeah, putting putting a Abreu uh, behind Helton and seventh, you know, in the vote makes it seem like he's not that good. But you know, which you're which you're looking at a you know some fairly some really good players and some that I can't that I'm not going to be voting for. So that moves him up to you know among players I would vote for, basically uh, fourth or fifth, you know, mm-hmm. in jaws. So then you're like, okay, that seems like somebody I can vote for. And then when you go over uh, and compare him to Hall of Fame outfielders. Uh, he sits between uh, Andre Dawson and uh, I believe uh, Dave Winfield, right in, yeah. in, in career.
2: Pretty credible uh, Hall Famers.
3: Yeah, uh, it is also interesting to think back though on his career as I as I appreciated it, and it's a, it's a funny. He's kind of a FanGraphs type player. Play on base, yeah. Good base running. Never hit like. Forty homers or mm-hmm. you know never really or stole the like 50 bags or whatever it was kind of like a 2020 guy right. with like a 380 OBP every year where you know it wasn't a, a type that I think the fandom really appreciated so I had this dual kind of energy uh, when I think back on Abreu as um, he's not a Hall of Famer because he's not one of the best players in the game that's sort of the, the general feeling right and then my sort of Fangraphs, you know, style analysis that was burgeoning during his mm-hmm. career being like, but no, he is one of the best he players. He should be he <laughs> should be thought of as one of the best players. Yeah, in the game. yeah
2: it's kind of yes. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's fair. I mean, I'm I'm kind of the same place. It's like he was grossly underappreciated. I mean, like only has a few all-star appearances. Yeah. And, you know, and I think had, you know, the analytical viewpoint been more predominant during especially the first half of his career, I think he would be celebrated, it would have been celebrated a lot more. And, you know, and I think he's one of those guys and I think, you know, kind of a Larry Walker light a little Mm. bit because Larry Walker had the defense going for him that Bobby Bray, unfortunately, does not. But, you know, that that I think deserve our appreciation in a retrospective sense more. And we need to, you know, you know, we, we have the power to try to elevate these guys and make sure that they get their due, even if they didn't always get it in their day.
3: Yeah, uh, he hit, there's some parallels to Scott Rowland. Doesn't really have yeah. the, the defense, but the the sort of unappreciated offense. Yeah,
2: and the well-rounded game. Yeah, we didn't talk about Todd Helton. That's the that's that's the other obviously second ranked in terms of voting percentage among the returnees. Where where are you on him?
3: Oh, man, I think I'm in, and the the one reason beyond uh, just sort of the numbers or whatever is you know. I think our understanding of park factors and uh, Denver may, may shift over time. May This is something that people have, have looked into and have found different sort of findings, basically. There's right. the idea that there's the, the fastball hangover effect, which is you in cores, you only see fastballs because the, the, the bendy stuff doesn't bend. Uh, and then you go on the road and you've created this fastball approach and you go on the road and you, all you see is junk comparatively.
2: It's hard. Yeah, it's hard to come back from course. It's hard, it's hard to be a, a Rockies player and, and to go on the road and and perform.
3: Yeah, and then there's. And, uh, I mean, that's. I think that's demonstrated. It's hard to know how to fold that into WRC And I'm not not necessarily trying to pick at WRC plus, but it is that park factor adjustment is huge for any right. course. That's also player. the physical stuff. Too. Yeah, I mean, we
2: know we're learning so much about like the physical effects of like how just how difficult it is for these guys to hold up. And I, I mean, like we've seen some like. Helton broke down late in his career before Tulowitzki. Yeah, well, Larry Walker, and the, know, the players,
3: had... even on the on like a day to day basis, tell me that they they have to schedule their lifts for when they land in San Diego and San Francisco because they know they'll sleep well that night, right? And they don't want to lift when they get back to, to uh, you know to Colorado because they yeah. won't sleep well. Yeah, and then you know people having children, Adam Oviedo telling me he has he's having a child in Colorado and he's tired all the time and he's trying to nap and they create a nap room, but like I'm sure they didn't have a nap room for Todd Helton, you know, and, it, yeah. and they, or he was. Too too manly to use it. Right. You know? Yeah, right. But right. like, you know, uh, you know the the sort of our understanding of how to deal with cores has changed over time. And if they were a better organization, they might be doing more interesting things to deal with it. But right. we'll, we might see those things come in the forward in the future. And then we might see our park factors change. Even the park doesn't change. Right. Because the team itself is doing things Different. in a more proactive yeah. way yeah. to deal That's with you know, so, I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, in some he had a, a Hall of Fame type career. It's I'm not 100 percent in, mm-hmm. but um, I think I'm leaning yes.
2: OK, well, this is this has been a really interesting discussion. And I think one thing, you know, that that you bring out from based on the work that you do is it, in intellectual curiosity and an admission that you don't have all the answers that you're still looking for some clarity and leaving open the possibility that there's still more to learn, even about the things that we think we know. So I think you're an ideal Hall of Fame voter in that respect, even if you're not a history buff. You're somebody who wants to do the work to figure out what the best answers are, even if you know that they're not 100% guaranteed to be the right answer. And so, you know, from my standpoint, I'd say welcome aboard to the to the <laughs> Club of Hall of Fame Voters. This has been a lot of fun to catch up with you and to talk about this stuff, and uh, uh, I hope you take a certain enjoyment out of this. I know that Hall of Fame voting is not always the funnest because you open yourself up to a oh, lot of public so criticism, much <laughs> and there's there's you're going to hear about it on Twitter no matter what you do. You might even hear it from friends about like how could you let me down on this guy? Yeah. but you put in the work to, to think about this stuff and to understand it, and that's uh, I think that's all anybody who really cares about this process can ask for.
3: Wow. So thanks for the kind words all right we'll see what happens once i debut that <laughs> list of votes hi
4: everyone i'm Davey andrews uh, welcome to fangraphs audio I, th- I think you've heard two other segments already today i'm here with alex Isert and we're going to be talking about outfield defense alex how are you doing
5: good thanks for having me
4: i have glad to be here hosting you after one whole time on the the show myself. So, <laughs> do you want to introduce yourself? We we obviously were were hired as contributors at the same time, but why don't you say hi to anybody who hasn't heard your dulcet tones before and you know, you want to talk about yourself and how you ended up at FanGraphs.
5: I'd love to. Hi. So, I've been a lifelong baseball fan. I'm a lifelong New Yorker, so I'm a Yankees fan. I know that might not endear me to every reader, but um, I did not know that <laughs> Esteban is a little more more forthcoming about yes. his Yankees fandom. Yes, there, but there's I a did lot me- of
4: East Coast bias here, in these new our, all all of our new contributors, it seems like three of us are in New York, and Leo's in Philadelphia.
5: Yeah, yeah, and I think Chris is in Boston. Oh, right. Oh, yeah.
4: I don't. I don't know how it got to be so East Coast heavy when we're all working from our respective homes.
5: Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. I think a little more muted though on my Yankees fandom because I know that it can get some hate. But I decided <laughs> to on my Twitter make the old Yankee Stadium uh, my like cover photo. Oh, um, I have not so noticed that. I'm I'm out now as a Yankees fan. In that sense. <laughs>
4: So how did you end up at at Fangraphs?
5: Yeah, so I've been a lifelong baseball fan. I've always kind of been more inclined to the analytic side of the game. I started playing fantasy baseball when I was nine years old. I was never a great player, um, (laughs) so I always kind of gravitated towards the numbers. And I started writing about baseball like towards the end of high school. Um, When I was 16, actually, there was a Fangraphs meetup in Staten Island, at a Staten Island Yankees game, and I went there and I met all my favorite writers, um, and I was really inspired to to start writing. And I can't believe that I'm writing with some of them now. Like if you had told my 16 year old self that, he would yes. maybe faint.
4: I think that's about when I started reading Fangraphs, and so like yes, I have. I it's very exciting that like I have had a conversation
5: with Meg Rowley. I know, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I. <laughs> I, when I was 16, I also like did this money ball program at Wharton. That was like a, a class <laughs> and I started like writing a blog with uh, some kids I met there who are equally inclined. And when I got to college, uh, I was the sports editor of my newspaper and I had this column called stat chat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. And that was a lot of fun. And I did some work for the, vassar baseball team as well through kind of through that column my the coach saw my articles and was like hey like you should be working for us oh really Mm -hmm.
4: there's no no analytics enmity at vassar
5: i mean there's there's a little bit um there's (laughs) by the by the end of my vassar tenure there was like a group of four of us who had discussions with the coach uh every so often and You know, he didn't always implement our suggestions, but he listened, and sometimes that's all you can ask for.
4: Mm -hmm. And then you've written at PitcherList at uh, Sports Info Solutions, right?
5: Yes. So this might be a good segue. So after college, I started writing at PitcherList, and my main interest is in um, applying cognitive psychology to baseball. I was a cognitive science psychology major at Vassar. And so that's kind of what I wrote about at PitcherList. But my full-time job this summer was working at Sports Info Solutions, and I was a video scout, which basically meant that I watched countless hours of baseball, and which is was pretty nice. And I also got to write for the blog there about some of the things that I kept track of. And one of those things was outfield defense.
4: Oh, re- I didn't realize that you came into it. I had seen you write about first base scoops, but I didn't realize that you were looking at outfield defense as well. We should probably pivot there, right? You've written three articles now about outfield defense, with the first just being about Nick Castellanos and the highs and lows of watching him try to be an outfielder.
5: Yes. Yeah. So I think I've written two now. So yeah, the, the first one was about Nick Castellanos. And so just going back a little bit to the sports info stuff, like what really got me interested in outfield defense was that job. And um, like for the most part, I was stringing games, but I kept track of a lot of additional data like GFPs and DMs, which are good fielding plays and defensive miscues. Um, and we actually track those on fan graphs <laughs> and among other things. I also kept track of check swings. And while I was at Sports Info, I wrote some articles, as I mentioned, and one of them was about Czech Swings. And it got that article got shouted out on Effectively Wild uh, the day before <laughs> I interviewed to be a contributor. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so naturally, in my interview, when I was asked about what I did at SIS, I brought up the Czech Swing article and how it was mentioned on Effectively Wild. And Meg was like, oh, my God, I didn't realize that was you. Did we cite you? And... <laughs> And of course they had, but even if they hadn't, I was just thrilled to not only have been shouted out on effectively wild, but also to have gotten an interview with my favorite website. Yeah, but but anyways, well, I think know, they nice. just
4: shouted you out last week
5: too. Oh, they did. No, I didn't even know that. <laughs> they they absolutely did.
4: <laughs> I think it was yeah, for it might have been for the directional OAA piece, but it they
5: definitely just did. Oh my god! Okay, I gotta go listen. <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not the best at keeping up on on my podcast, um, mm-hmm. but now that I'm being shouted out, I really got to.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's important to
5: know when you're famous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all me and all 126 of my Twitter followers. So, <laughs> shout out to them also.
4: So, do you want to talk about directional OAA? I the thing that I loved about this article before it even got started is right at the top. This is an article about directional outs above average, and you you started a, a sentence with, "I decided to come at this question from a few angles." <laughs> it's uh I don't know that's that's the sentence of the year for me so far.
5: Thank you, thank you <laughs> i I actually wrote that, and then I looked back and I was like, "Wait a second, that's really good. <laughs>
4: I think I do the opposite. Sometimes the jokes come out, but sometimes I write, like, the the last piece I wrote on outfield defense, I finished it, and I was like, this is too dry. And so I just went, read through the whole, yeah, I don't know, 1,500 mm-hmm. words, specifically looking for, what is something funny I mm-hmm. can say
5: amidst all of these numbers? Yeah, I, for me, it's like 50-50. Sometimes I... I have just like too many numbers, and I do go back and I'm like, where insert funny where. Right. And, um, <laughs> but other times I just look back and I'm like, oh, I was funnier than I thought.
4: <laughs> I think the, definitely the first few articles I've submitted, I've kind of submitted it and then said to Meg or John on the side, like, it, this can be less silly if you need it to be. Mm. You know, I, I don't
5: exactly know where the line is. Mm hmm. I think that I I tend towards more formal, but I think I draw my line closer to the more formal as well, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. So I think that I could always benefit from a little more funniness, (laughs) but I don't necessarily add it in.
4: Mm -hmm. Well, so why don't we boot? You want to talk about your OAA? I mean, I guess both of these are in a way about directional OAA, but just talk about what what you found and, and kind of what made you think of looking at it that way in the first place.
5: Yeah, so... You know at sis like we did a lot of work on fielding i a lot of my job was just plotting fielders on a baseball diamond diagram and also um, keeping track of what they call descriptive defense which is basically like a bunch of categorical variables on defense um, like Mm -hmm. approach you can put um, their approach into sprinting jogging walking diving how they caught the ball backhand forehand over the shoulder So basically, I was just watching like a lot of, you know, fielders just like standing in the outfield and also approaching balls in the outfield. Mm -hmm. And the thing the thing that actually initially got me interested in this topic was Joey Gallo, who I'm a Yankees fan. So naturally, I was fixated on his struggles at the beginning of this past season. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people overlooked how much he struggled in the field as well. You know, a gold glover in 2021 in right right field. Um, The Yankees played him a lot in left at the beginning of the season, um, and he was pretty bad there. And in his career, he has nine outs above average in right field and negative two in left in roughly the same amount of innings.
4: And left field at Yankee Stadium is not particularly easy.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right field, you know, there are a lot of opportunities that just end up being home runs, so... Mm -hmm. (laughs) but that's true. So, definitely want to cut Joey some slack there and I know that he got a really hard time from the fans and I definitely resent that. <laughs> um I feel bad for him. So Yeah,
4: it's that's hard to see.
5: Yeah. I mean, he said he had trouble leaving his home like
4: That real I I remember reading that and I it, it's hard to imagine. I don't know. I I don't I I don't like booing people personally. It's hard to imagine yeah. getting to the point where he doesn't want to leave his house.
5: Yeah. Yeah, no, I know the fans here can be can be a bit harsh, but you know, <laughs> I'll always be a Yankees fan. So mm-hmm. hopefully, I can help uh, you know turn the tide a little bit there and make us a little bit of a friendlier fan base.
4: <laughs> yeah, one person at a time.
5: Yeah, but anyways, Gallo is he fields right handed and he was faring much better in right field. So that's kind of what got me onto this whole idea about handedness. And then I was like, oh, the Gallo narrative is kind of a tired one, uh, especially once he got traded. And so I was kind of looking for my current event opening to talk some more about it. And uh, then came, along came Nick Castellanos, <laughs> of all people. And so I, he was making these all these sliding catches to his left. And Kyle Tucker, as you noted in your article, was also better to his left. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to look at this on a grander scale. And I found that lefties were much better moving to their right, while righties were actually slightly better moving to their right too, although that was insignificant. And righties were also much better to their left than lefties were. So in other words, lefties were much better to their glove side, uh, and righties, while not better to their glove side, were much better than lefties to that side. Right. So I think I took this to be somewhat of a, you know, somewhat supporting my hypothesis. And in my next article, I want to look further into how teams could apply these results. And I looked at positioning. On average, outfielders are positioned pretty close to where balls are hit. And this didn't really change depending on whether the outfielder was better to their left or right. Uh, they weren't positioned more to their weaker side to make up ground or anything. Although mm-hmm. I did find that better backpedalers were generally positioned shallower. Right. But I spent most of the article looking at outfield alignment and I uh, was inspired. I wanted to point out there were some great comments on some of these articles. I love our readers, especially when they don't disagree with me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And there was one reader on the first article uh, named Nat's fan who wrote that sounds
4: like a great guy right off the bat.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to still be a Nats fan in this day and age. (laughs) You really, you know? Oh, that hurts. (laughs) Oh, are you? Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. No, I'm from uh, Northern Virginia, so I was I was got raised it. an Orioles fan and to mm-hmm. loathe you and everyone like you. And then you know, but I I grew up around 15 minutes from where Nationals Park is, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm both, but more a Nats fan these days. Got it.
5: I see. Yeah. I have I have a lot of respect for the Orioles. I have a lot of friends who live in Baltimore, uh, <laughs> and I love Camden Yards. And I'm writing about Kyle Gibson right now.
4: Oh, you you got Gibson.
5: Yes, the Orioles' uh, marquee free agent signing, you know. I, know? I know, It's maybe a little less than we might have been led to believe. Yeah, uh, I, but Elias says more is coming, so. Oh, really? Yes, I mean, we'll see if that's the case, but he does say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's a lot to like, though, with that team.
4: Yeah, I mean, the upside is there, and it's just a matter of when they decide to go for it, but we don't know what going for it necessarily looks like for them just yet, so.
5: yeah. But, anyways, maybe they can be helped by my outfield alignment ideas. <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right, so I'm sorry. So you were on Nats fan. Yes.
5: Yeah, so, okay, so Nats fan brought to my attention that a ball hawking center fielder has important implications for using directional OAA to construct outfield alignment. Yeah. So, specifically, you should put your better left moving outfielders in right field so that they can seed fly balls to their weaker side to the center fielder. Yeah. And then you're better right side movers and left, so they can see it fly balls to their weaker side to the center fielder, too. And this idea held up as left fielders had a higher OAA when moving to their right, and right fielders a higher OAA when moving to their left. Right. But these effects were fairly marginal, and it's not really sure, it's, it's not really clear why they occur. Like, it might also be because more hits that land foul to the left of a right fielder and the right of a left fielder. While hits the gap never do, right? And so moving to the gap might just appear to be the weaker side. So I also decided to revisit some older studies of outfield alignment. There was a Dave Cameron one, which basically says that you should put your best outfield glove in center simply because they get more play. Um, right, and I
4: I noticed reading that, which I I think I had missed when it. I, I don't think I was on the the scene just yet <laughs> when that came out, but I. I was surprised by the number of balls that he, you know, like I. One of the things that I was surprised by in the the stuff that I've written, in, in researching it, is just the the number of of balls that are in play. You know, I think I started off with I forget if it was Miles Straw or if I ended up switching him out for someone, mm-hmm. but it's you know something like a he's a center fielder and something like a only a, a quarter of the balls that were hit to him, you know, that that he was credited with being the the fielder for were actually in any sort of doubt. And because he's a great outfielder, mm-hmm. he caught 100% of his one and two star catches. So it's the real number right. is is even smaller. Although Cameron made it seem like he thought that number was even smaller than than my research showed or my aggregation of other people's numbers showed.
5: Yeah. I mean, I found that um, one thing I was looking at is so center fielders led and put out opportunities, but they also led, they led by such a huge margin that not only did they lead in um, easier put-out opportunities, um, so those that had an ex-Wobacon under 300, (laughs) but they also led in more difficult put-out opportunities. The the only real difference between ex-Wobacons in terms of the different outfield positions on any batted ball was in terms of fly balls. And center fielders had much more difficult fly balls hit to them mm-hmm. on average and I'm sorry, and then you got into arm strength as well a little bit, yes, so I still think that you know put outs outnumber assist opportunities nearly two to one, right so assists are another important factor when you're looking at alignment, but put outs are still king, and you know clearly you should have your best glove in center field, but you know. When you're looking at the corners, it's a little tougher. Right field gets slightly more fly balls, and, and teams did on average put their best gloves in center, their next best gloves in right, and their worst in left. But in terms of arm action, it's not really clear You know which position has the most opportunities when you're looking at either spray angle or who actually fielded the ball. There are some interesting differences there uh, in terms of arm opportunities as well as fielding opportunities. But mm-hmm. either way you looked at it, right field had more opportunities than left field. But then it turned out that teams didn't necessarily put their best arm in right field or, you know, by the by the metrics that I, um, the rate metric that I tried to come up with because I, I don't have access. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
4: familiar with that, that struggle. I, I've tested, I don't know, five or six different ones at this point.
5: Yeah, yeah. I included a couple different ones based on number of opportunities. Right. But either way, they didn't put their best arms in right. And sometimes left. the arms in left were better than the ones in right. But something interesting that I did find is, so maybe teams aren't looking at the best overall arm when they're deciding who should play each corner, but they're just looking at handedness. Because left fielders had much better arm ratings from left field, and right right-handed fielders had much better arm ratings from right field.
4: That's interesting.
5: Yeah, and I I theorize that it was had something to do with the angle at which they throw the ball. Like maybe it's easier to field and and transfer if you're a righty from from right field. Right. But again, I have to hand it to another interesting comment from <laughs> Mrdxol, um, who pointed out that. They're, I mean, OK, my favorite my favorite username has been sad trombone,
4: who has been a reader long before I was
5: on the scene. Yes, they comment on almost every article. Mm-hmm. So shout out to sad trombone. Yeah, also.
4: The, the real star of fangrass.com. Truly.
5: But anyways, MRDXOL, they pointed out that there's likely some selection bias when it comes to left handed outfielders because, you know, lefties can only play first base or, or outfield. So you're saying you get people who might have had the skills to
4: play on the left side of the infield, but can't.
5: Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best long distance arms. And especially (laughs) because there's kind of a push for lefties with big arms to become pitchers. Uh-huh. They're kind of lefties are kind of overrepresented when it comes to pitchers. Mm-hmm. So that might be why at, at least left-handed arms appear to be worse overall. That oh. still doesn't really explain necessarily why, you know, left, left-handed left arms are better in left and worse in right and vice versa for righties. But it's definitely something interesting to consider. That is, yeah,
4: Mr. DXLL, really. That's, I'm I'm really thinking about that. That's a good point.
5: Yes. And it also made me think about something else, which is, this conspiracy theory I have. And
4: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that it's this kind of podcast, but I've only been on <laughs> once before. So.
5: Yeah, me neither. So <laughs> this may be cut, but um, I think in, in some ways, based on my psychology background, human beings are kind of not necessarily wired to be lefties. And obviously there's nothing wrong with being left-handed. And I don't think that people should be attacked for preferring to use their left hand. Like my dad is a lefty. And when he was in first grade, his teacher kicked him out of class because she thought he had the devil oh, in him.
4: Those stories make me really sad, not to mention the word sinister.
5: Right. I was about to say that. I, I took Latin by the, in by high the way, school. So.
4: Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's amazing that two people who took Latin in high school ended up writing about baseball numbers. It is could've? quite amazing. <laughs> I am left handed and I lost my glove when I was very young Mm -hmm. and had to use my brother's. So I do most things right handed, including play baseball, just because I spent enough
5: time playing baseball that that my body kind of rewired itself a a bit. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of left handed hitters kind of force themselves to become right handed fielders just because there's more flexibility.
4: Right, and I mean, there, there's also talk. You know, I remember someone trying to convince me to switch it because you know my my you know maybe my the fact mm-hmm. that my right eye might be dominant after all, so it might mm-hmm. benefit. You know, there's it's it's hard to know, but I I definitely think it's interesting. I here's my big question for you after you have dived w- very deeply into these numbers. Who did you come out away from these articles thinking this guy is a great outfielder more than I realized before? Because I I definitely had a mm. couple of people. Well, let me hear your people. I started with Dalton Varsho, mm-hmm. who is fantastic. And you watch his plays and he just, he never looks lost at, at any point. You know, I watch so many four and five star plays and Dalton Varsho just always looked like he knew where he was. But he's also not particularly fast. He mm-hmm. just does everything right. You know, you can be a great outfielder and not be terribly fast if you do every single thing right. And he, he is one of those few guys. Jackie Bradley Jr. is, is still mm-hmm. one of those guys, even though he's lost a, a fair amount of speed and at this point is well below average.
5: Yeah. Dalton Varsho is really an interesting case. He's a guy who I think, you know, he might not necessarily have the kind of speed and agility that a lot of teams look for in outfielders. But he's just someone who's amazing at learning skills and fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe he's one of these cases where, cause he hits left handed and he throws right handed. He just picked up, you know, fielding right handed to increase his positional flexibility. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, to be able to be, you know, almost a gold glove outfielder, I think he should have won. You can read my articles on that too. I I think so too. (laughs) To be such a good outfielder. And also still play catcher?
4: I mean, that part, it's, it's also, it's just crazy. Yeah. If, if I had to catch more than two innings of a game, I wouldn't be able to run for a week.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So this, this is a guy who is tremendous at picking up skills. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think Jackie Bradley, is he another one of those guys who hits left-handed and feels right-handed? Oh, I don't remember offhand. Okay. It looks like he is. Yes. <laughs> but he's also got a lot of speed. I mean, you're you're (laughs) going to write about this at some point, right? I should. I totally should. I've been thinking about writing, like, back to the whole Joey Gallo thing that started this. I wanted to look at specifically players who who played multiple positions, let alone multiple outfield positions, and kind of look at, you know, characteristics that improve their ability to do so at multiple positions. I imagine speed is one of them, but... There's something like special about Dalton Varshow and his ability to pick up skills I think which is actually that's something like skill learning is something that I also studied in cognitive science so I'm definitely interested in in looking at that I you know and and ways that players are training nowadays to enhance their ability to retain and learn skills um like drive line and all of that good stuff
3: mm-hmm. Do
4: you want we, we should close out in a couple minutes do you want to talk A little more before we go about your cognitive side background and and how that you know makes its way into baseball?
5: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the whole kind of enterprise of Moneyball was to have a scientific approach to baseball. And that's kind of what Sandy Alderson always preached. And so I learned, you know, how to how to conduct science just by studying uh, psychology and cognitive science. And I do think that sabermetrics has gone a little bit away from that pure scientific enterprise and like in front offices nowadays you have a lot of pure math guys and (laughs) economics guys and i think behavioral economics gives us some interesting clues to how we might approach the next frontier of baseball analytics because behavioral economics looked at economics and said that we have these very broad models that are ignoring individual differences, like, you know, for example, and who's better at learning and picking up skills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have all these pure econ guys now in front offices. And I think there's there are some holes there. So right,
4: and none of this matters, if you can't communicate it in a way that makes sense to the people who are hearing you.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. So psychology is all about that. And writing is all about that. And so that's kind of My goal ultimately is to be able to find some interesting holes to fill in baseball and communicate effectively about them. And yeah, I mean, so far I've been looking at things like what I call swing mirroring, which is basically how the previous batter influences the next batter's uh, swing behavior. Like after a home run, the next batter might be more inclined to swing at the first pitch.
4: That's really interesting, the same way the crowd
5: is primed to cheer for a medium fly ball after a home run. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, same kind of thing. It's priming and what's called informational and normative influence. And, yeah, I hope to have something out about that soon. There's some I wrote some about that at PitcherList. Mm-hmm. I also uh, have this—I wrote a thesis this year in Cognitive Science— where I built a neural network that, yes. yes.
4: Okay, I, I wanna hear more about it. I, I only know the, the five word summary.
5: Yes. <laughs> so basically the neural network looks at this noisy uh, trajectory information and uses it to predict at each step of the trajectory, the ultimate location and speed of a, of a pitch. And so there were some interesting implications basically on on the results. So I looked at kind of like the errors the model made, and I looked at by pitcher, And I compared the errors to swinging strike rates and O swing rates and other measures of deception. (sighs) And there are a few versions of the model that I used, But basically, the ones that the, the version of the model that was most similar to these actual measures of deception was one that indicated basically batters try to make their swing decisions 150 milliseconds before pitch arrival. So that's what's most, which is most effective rather than like trying to guess pre-pitch.
4: So a successful model in this case would have been one that guesses wrong when batters do as indicated by swinging strikes.
5: Yeah. So that was, that was one thing I was looking for Mm -hmm. was which model version of the model is closest to actual hitters. Mm -hmm. But then I also looked at like, which one was just more effective in general. Mm -hmm. And in that condition, I was looking at how kind of like strategic indicators. So like how many men are on base? uh, What, what's the count? What was the previous pitch? And that was much worse at predicting the ultimate location and speed than something like looking at the trajectory information. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think the use of of models like this is to try and get inside the head of a hitter and figure out their approach and compare it to uh, what they say firsthand.
4: Right. And I mean, I imagine that would pay dividends both to people trying to understand from a hitter's perspective and from a pitcher's perspective.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. It goes both ways. Something I've, I've noticed often is that I write a version of an article, and then I'm like, wait a second, I can write a second version of this article <laughs> looking at it just from the pitcher's perspective. That, that's exactly
4: what I, I did this week, mm-hmm. although it was much
5: uh, sillier. <laughs> I, I was not creating a neural network. I mean, you know, that's fine. I think, I think that actually in the spring, um, my last semester of college, I was in this psychology seminar on humor, and you can be a lot more effective uh, conveying your argument when you have humor included in the argument. So there's no, you know, we shouldn't minimize, you know, the importance (laughs) of of being funny. Like we're talking all here about, we're talking about psychology and communication. Humor is an important part about that.
4: That's a a fair point.
5: (laughs) 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 Um, But wait, I have one more thing I want oh, sure. to say. I didn't finish telling you about my conspiracy theory.
4: I, I apologize.
5: So I don't subscribe to lefties, you know, being, you know, Evil? I, I, they should have the same opportunities in life as <laughs> right-handed people, of course. <laughs> I don't subscribe to that. <laughs> but clearly, you know, in important respects, like they might have some extra hurdles to overcome uh, in order to play baseball. And, you know, we should continue to try and find out, you know, why is it that somebody like Dalton Varsho is, is able to learn these extra skills? And because, so a reason that I have this kind of conspiracy theory that like, you know, not only are there practical hurdles, like, uh, you know, lefties have a hard time playing in field positions, mm-hmm. but there's also this wiring in your brain sometimes that gets mixed up, which is... You know, one example of this is that I've noticed anecdotally, and I think there is a study out there on this, but don't quote me on that. Lefties typically have worse handwriting because your language center is on the left side of your brain, which controls the right side of your body. So basically, there has to be like cross hemispheral activity when lefties write, but not when righties do. Interesting. And Yeah, and and when you're learning a skill, you know, obviously there's a lot of communication involved and there's a lot of language involved. So maybe something similar is going on that causes lefties on average to be worse fielders if they're choosing to field Mm left-handed. But, you know, they might get away with this, on the other hand, with the bat, because the majority of pitchers are righties and they have a distinct advantage against them.
4: Well, Right, but would you... I, I want to push back a little because I feel like mm-hmm. while you might feel you know the ball ends up in your glove hand, there's a lot more going on than than just the yeah. you know actual manual part of catching it, and and most of that is is a full body. So, or, but are yes. we we just talking about which hemisphere of your brain is is dominant?
5: Yeah, yeah. I that's that's basically what I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I hear you, and uh-huh. I think even you know. If you're a lefty naturally, and you choose to play the outfield right-handed, there might be some other considerations, like maybe you prefer to take your first step with your left leg, because that's mm-hmm. your dominant leg. Fielding is definitely a whole body experience, and this is, even my, you know, my deep dives into outfield defense are oversimplifications, because anytime you build a model, it's an oversimplification, which is, right. back to my point, which is that we need more psychology in baseball.
4: And more psychologists, presumably.
5: Yeah. <laughs> All
4: right. Well, I guess we should end here. It was, you know, nice to have you on the podcast. It was also just nice to get to to chat with you. You know, I have really been enjoying your work, so it's fun to hear you talk about where you come from and you know where where your ideas come from.
5: Absolutely. Thank you. I've been enjoying your work too. It's been a pleasure. And. Maybe I can drag you to a Yankees game at some point.
4: I would love to go to a Yankees game. I used to live in in Queens, so I was right by. Mm-hmm. I, I was pretty close to to Flushing, but but now I, I'm closer to uh, the Cyclones. So that that's the, uh-huh. the lion's share of my my experience. I'm very sad they they just lost Keyshawn Askew
5: because I was mm. very excited to see him. Yes, that was uh, Brooks Raley. Yes.
4: Yeah, I, I'm curious how New York fans will welcome him.
5: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Mets have had an interesting offseason. Yeah, I,
4: I spent my morning writing about uh, Jose Quintana, and uh-huh. they, they're going to have a a, old. a a staff.
5: Yeah, a very old around my age, so extremely old. They better use David Peterson as their fifth starter, though. He
4: is a baby. He's just 27. <laughs> He's probably going to start to shave soon.
5: yes. He's my he's on my fantasy team. So oh, oh wow.
4: well okay. Well there crazy. you go.
5: <laughs> also, I've been keeping tabs on him since the Yankees drafted Clark Schmidt over him. You... <laughs> which pissed me off. I'm not a huge like, you know, prospect hound or college baseball follower, mm-hmm. but I had a gut feeling in that draft. I was like, hmm, guy coming off Tommy John versus a lefty who throws hard and gets ground balls, like mm-hmm. choose the lefty there. Mm-hmm. You know, back to lefties again. Here we are.
4: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Alex, it was so great to talk to you. You too. And uh, everyone out there, thank you so much for listening to Fangraphs Audio.
5: Thank you.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Fernando Perez and Eno Saras for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sending it to a friend or two. Tell them to give it a listen it would help us out. After you have visited the Fangraphs.com shop and considered an ad-free membership, don't forget to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on all the things we have going on over at the website, and like, look, I'll be honest, I'm not sure you can do it on your own. It's been a lot this week. The newsletter is free to your inbox and will help keep you in the loop of all the cool stuff we have going on. I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We hope your favorite team made a splash this week. Have a good one, and we'll talk to you next time.